I think we have a pretty gentle outlook on alcohol, at least here in the United States. It's readily available from any corner convenience store, and we accept that kids will be kids when they start drinking or throwing parties underage. And yes, many people like myself only have a drink every week or month. However, I think most of us probably know someone who has several drinks a night, every night of their life. Not only does that make them a clinical alcoholic, but it also threatens to shorten their natural life by 30 years. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Andrew Colkin. One day, he met the love of his life, Amanda. They got married and had a son, all while she was drinking a full bottle of wine per day. Things only went downhill from there. Amanda moved up from one bottle to over two a day, had multiple DUIs and accidents, lost close friends, and went to not one or two, but seven rehab facilities before ultimately dying. Andrew now carries her story forward as a cautionary tale and tries to help others find and understand the risks that they are taking on. Let's make sure people get the help they need. Welcome to the show, Andrew Culkin. Hello, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you. So, so glad to be here. <laughs> yes, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience that's listening? Yeah, my name is Andrew Culkin, and I'm actually the uh, author of a book called Amanda, A Cautionary Tale. What is it? It's the story of my wife's, you know, her 20-year, 20, 25-year 20, decline with alcoholism. And eventually here, uh, untimely passing a little over two years ago. Uh, and it's really a story of, it's a Shakespearean tragedy, really. I mean, it's a, it's a person, a dynamic person who slowly uh, just declined into a complete and total alcoholic uh, and into this abyss of mental illness and, and madness, really. And it's about a family struggling and trying to understand. Um, it's about me being completely ignorant of a disease uh, and to, you know, grapple with it along with my son and for all the three of us to get together through this, you know, to get through this ordeal. And uh, it's, it's a very gripping, very, very real uh, story <laughs> uh, in, in great detail of what someone goes through when they have this, this horrific disease. Uh, and no, no different than cancer or heart disease. I just want people to understand it as a disease. We need to find ways to be less reactive towards this disease and to understand it as a disease, you know, essentially, and um, to be to have more empathy and to find better and newer ways to to help people. Uh, the best way is prevention. And that's that's why we're doing this pod, you know, I'm, you know, podcasts and talking about it all over the all, all, everywhere I can. So if we can prevent anybody from going down that road through the horror story, <laughs> that's, that's the best way to start. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for those unfamiliar, what is the, the definition or the diagnosis that determines if someone is an alcoholic? To begin with, I want to say that the, the last person that realizes that they're an alcoholic 
is the alcoholic. <laughs> Everyone around that person is well aware that person has an issue long before the person does. Clinically, you know, they say women, it's like six to seven drinks a week. Men, it's eight to 14 drinks a week that creates an alcoholic. But the reality it is, it, it's, it's something you've created a habit. You've created um, something that slowly may have crept up on you. It was because you had some stress in your life. And maybe in a period in your life, most people start their alcoholic career between the ages of 13 and 18. Uh, and certainly, we really try to target people or, or who are college-aged or, or uh, seniors in high school. That's really where a lot of people start because they're so uh, exposed to it. You're just exposed to it so much when you're at that age. Uh, and it makes people, um, they're able to come out of themselves. They're able to become a person uh, that, they're not, that they weren't able to be. Maybe they're an introvert. And you have a little bit of alcohol and, you know, you can get on the dance floor, <laughs> you know, and Friday night you get you had too much. It turns into Saturday. And before you know it, you're having a hair dog Monday morning. And before you know it, Thursday of the following week, you're still getting over uh, your, your party that you had on the weekend. And you've created a habit, uh, which is, you know, a, a really scary road to go down, really scary road to go. And, that, and that's how it starts. That's just how it starts. Sure. And there's a lot of media, I think, that we consume that either is like, oh, it's the the high school party, you know, like, oh, watch out for the cops. And right. it's like, you know, 17 and 18 year olds having like a full blown keg party in the back of their their parents house. Oh, um, absolutely. Or any of the college aged, you know, TV or movies where there is just like some incredible raging party going on and they kind of normalize that like oh yeah it's just what you do when you're in high school and college <laughs> and i'm thinking it's, back it's, to it's, mine i'm like i didn't do that but it's like I'm a coming just... of age it's almost a coming of age kind of thing you know yeah. well i mean i grew up in upstate new york i mean i'm you know by, i'm by no means a teetotaler and that's not really what i'm preaching but when, when i was a kid you know we very similar to Oregon. I mean, upstate New York is, uh, it's all woods and we used to have parties up in the woods and helicopters would come and break it up. You know? <laughs> uh, my, my dad, in fact, was the high school principal. So, I mean, it was a double whammy for me if I got in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were definitely in trouble. I was in big trouble. Yeah. I had to represent, but you know, that we're just, we, we really want to, um, just make kids aware if they're if they're starting to drink on a regular basis. I mean, if you're if you're getting drunk five out of seven days, you, you really ought to think you got a problem, you know. And it's it's never too late or never too early to seek help. Um, and there are outlets to you know to have somebody to talk to, or if you think you need to go to a you know maybe a thirty day rehab even, and uh, and get into group session or. AA meetings, we can talk about that later, but th there's a lot of avenues and places you can go to, to, to seek help if if your friends are telling you maybe you ought to slow it down, maybe you ought to listen to them. <laughs> right, and it seems like given the, uh, I know we're not really leaning on that diagnosis from a clinical perspective, but when somebody says, oh, you know, it's eight drinks a week, like, well, the person who has you know, a casual glass of wine a night and then a couple on the weekend like already meets that requirement right right so it is it is not exactly a uh 
who is the like the Hemingway romanticism of alcoholism where they're like, oh, you need to be throwing back three glasses of scotch every night. Right. Right. Like, you know, you're not a man unless you can do like five shots. You know, Um, and there's there's a lot of mystique behind it. You know, there's a lot of glamorous, you know, it's very glamorous to to drink. Um, I mean, I myself, I mean, I I drink, I have a cigar once in a while and I'll have a bourbon. But, you know, that would be that would be it. You know, like two shots of bourbon and a, and a <clears throat> with uh, two pieces of ice, and I might sip on it for three hours, and that, that would be pretty much the uh, extent of what I do. But that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about college age kids. Sure. I mean, you, you, college age kids have the tendency to drink until they pass out. You know, it's it's an issue. Well, yeah, it's one of those like you have learned your your limits and what you should be doing versus just a uh, wild inhibition right it's like you know the old the animal house <laughs> if you've yes. seen that movie with john blue i'm dating myself but back in the 70s a very famous it, typical it, college you know experience <laughs> it actually takes place at the university of oregon it takes place at the university of oregon so i'm sure you're very familiar with it <laughs> i am very familiar with it yeah <laughs> And they probably shot that in the uh, the actual downtown when they when they did the parade at the end. Yeah, but, you know, it's a bunch of you know it's kids and, and there's a lot of peer pressure to drink. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. It, I, I take my son for example. I actually have a picture of him there, but he's he's from the he's right now a, he's going to be a senior next year at the University of Santa Cruz, and because of his experience with his mother, he doesn't drink at all. In fact, when he turned 21 uh, about a year and a half ago. His friends gave him a bottle of Jack Daniels and he ended up giving it to me because <laughs> dad, I don't want to, I don't ever want to touch this stuff. You know, and it's very, it's for me, it's kind of strange. <laughs> 21 year old kid. He, he will not drink. And I think it's great, but I think he's been pretty much scared straight just by his own experience. It's just, just by having a, a front seat view of, uh, you know, of, of the horror that, uh, that alcoholism can create. And is some of this just that, you know, you cannot see your own issues or is there a lot of denial playing into it? Well, it's self-actualization. Absolutely. You know, you, you people, and it starts slowly. I mean, take, for example, my, if I want to talk about my wife. I mean, she started, she was drinking 0.75 bottle of wine, you know, full bottle of wine almost every day when I, even when I first met her, I, I mean, they were from Canada, her family was from Canada and there's some French Canadian in them. I thought it was kind of a cultural thing because her family all drank wine. My family never drank wine. You know, my dad might have a bourbon once every, you know, if he got paid every payday or something. So I was not familiar with it at all. And after a few, if she would drink a bottle of wine just to be normal. Uh, not every day, but maybe four or five days. And then eventually it was seven days. And then Eventually, those 0.75 uh, bottles of wine, which is an average bottle of wine, turned into 1.75. You know, that's that's almost two liters of wine that she was drinking a day just to be normal. Uh, and then it became a seven day a week <laughs> ritual. And she wouldn't walk in the door without a bottle of Chardonnay. Um, and even even today, I smell Chardonnay and I just gag. You know, <laughs> I can't even drink the stuff. I can't even smell it. But that's how it started. It started very slow. Um, just, and she created a habit and it, it's a class classic case of how it starts. Um, we were both 
insurance brokers. I mean, I've been an insurance broker for 30 years, but I met her in the office. Uh, she was one of the leading salespeople there. She was just a very dynamic. She had, uh, you know, bright blue eyes and uh, a very pretty Southern California blonde. Um, and just to, just to be normal, she had to drink wine every single day when she came home. I think it started from the stress of the job. I mean, you know, dealing with people all day long and, and doing group presentations. I think there was a lot of stress in the job. Um, we had quotas we had to meet. You know, there, there's a lot of pressure, but it's life. that you, you're, There's always going to be something that's going to um, ignite us. There's something that's going to create a reason to drink. Uh, and if you already have a tendency to drink, if you already have some kind of D, something in your DNA, that's a double whammy. Uh, I mean, her mother, her grandmother was a, was a raging alcoholic and, and died from alcoholism. You know? um, so it was in the family, uh, which is, uh, if you have that in your family, it's a good indication that maybe you want to rethink your actions. You know? Sure. And it feels like, as with, I think, many if not all addictions, there gets this mindset where they say, I can quit anytime. Yeah. I just don't want to. Yeah. That's the, that, that's one of the five myths. I call them five myths of, of being an alcoholic. The number one is I can quit anytime I want. No, you can't. Cause once you become an alcoholic and, and you become chronic, you actually have a physical and a mental uh, association with, with alcoholism. You have a, a dependency uh, and you cannot quit no matter what, no matter what you think you can, unless you have a willpower. Once you become chronic, unfortunately, once you get into the rehab facilities, you've been to two or three rehab facilities and you're starting to visit jail cells because you got DUIs, you, you got about a five to 10% chance you're going to get out of it. I mean, it's, it's bleak once you become a chronic alcoholic. Once you get to that point. Yeah, um, that, that is. It's bleak. Very, because you're saying either one in 10, if you're being optimistic, yeah. gets out. And if you're, you know, being maybe more on the realism side, one in 20 actually recovers. Realistically, one in 20. And even that person is, is a miracle <laughs> to some extent. It really is because. Uh, you just have to have the willpower. Uh, one thing that used to bother me with, with my wife is there was a, a, an actor, actually a comedian by the name of Andy Dick. And he, he, he you know, you may know, he, he was a lot of sitcoms back in the 90s. And he went to five rehabs before he was able to, to he really, he's one of the ones, he's one of the 5%. He eventually got his life together and, and he got his, and uh, was able to continue with his career. But my wife would always say she was in like your second or third rehab. She goes, well, I haven't got to my fifth yet. You know, maybe I'll, I'll wait to my fifth. <laughs> what are you waiting for? And, you know, and again, not, not to get off the subject, but the expense of alcoholism is, is outrageous. Uh, a rehab facility is minimum thirty to $40,000 a month if you go to like one of these high-end places like Malibu, they're sixty, seventy thousand dollars a month, and I think they're more resort than rehab <laughs> to some extent. I mean, I could talk about rehabs for you know for a long time. I have I have an issue with them. Um, there's there's not enough follow-up. Um, rehab facility. Um, do you want to talk about that for a little while? 
Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of shocked at the number when you said thirty to forty thousand dollars for a month for at a month. some of these facilities. You're like, yeah, Andy Dick was able to get clean after going to five rehabs. And it's like, well, there's a reason he's the miracle is because he had two hundred thousand dollars he could throw. I mean, again, minimum at a right. rehab facility. <laughs> Yeah, well, luckily, and it, it, the health, well, because we were insurance brokers, I had great health care coverage. So I didn't actually have to pay. I think I had a deductible about $350. You know, <laughs> you know I, I don't think I'd, I would have spent, uh, oh, approaching 300000 for rehabs. And, and she actually, her seventh rehab, she actually fell down a flight of stairs and hit her head. And she was in, uh, a semi coma, and it, it was it was in Los Angeles, and she was in the UCLA Medical Center for 30 days before she passed away. And that, and just, just to give you another number, uh, it was two and a half million dollars for her the last 30 days of her life. So th- there's a there's a big price ticket we we all have to spend for this disease, you know. In one way or another, we all we all pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope people are are giving proper recognition to some of these numbers because it's like, if you, you know, didn't have that great insurance or, you know, you weren't working all the time or you were by yourself and trying to, to fix this problem. Like these are humongous numbers and needs that you'd have to overcome that are not, I think generally accessible to just like somebody, especially if you're a young kid that just wants to like, get help after you know struggling through college well like if you're in college i know a lot of college campuses they have places uh where you can talk to someone you know if you if you think you have an issue you can start there because usually when you're 18 19 20 years old you don't have 20 years of alcoholism underneath your belt like my wife luckily you know but i mean that those are the later stages when you're that age is when you can you still have the ability to, to talk and you're also growing. Your mind is still growing at that age. I mean, you're still developing as a person. So you still have the ability to mature on your own and to, and, and to have some self-actualization and just not to continue that. You have a lot better chance the younger you are. Very similar to cancer. You have a better chance of surviving if it's stage one instead of stage four. It's, it's the exact same thing. Same thing with heart disease. You know, I mean, if you can, if you're, if you weigh 400 pounds, maybe you ought to lose some weight. You know, you, you have to treat your disease just like any disease. Uh, although it's mental and physical, you still have to treat the disease. You know, and the earlier, the better. That's really what I'm really what I, what this is all about is, to, is, is prevention and to, for people to have the self-realization that they've got to take action if their friends are telling them uh, maybe they ought to slow up a little bit, or if they're if they're by some miracle or they're able to recognize it in themselves. Uh, but sometimes when you're younger, it's just too cool. It's just cool to, you know, to drink. You know, it, it gives you a high. It gives you, and you, it allows you to come out of yourself. Especially, you know, a lot of kids are they're really introverts by nature, or they just haven't developed enough yet at that age. You know, high school age and they just haven't come into their own yet. And alcohol uh, allows them to be something that they may not be for a short time. It's just the, the habit is, is the issue, just creating a habit. And there has to be some health issues that an alcoholic faces. I mean, early on versus, you know, significantly later, obviously they're different. 
Oh, I, I, yeah, there, you have to worry about cirrhosis of the liver, uh, liver cancer. Liver cancer, because of COVID-19, is up by 30%. Um, the weight issue, just the, just the caloric intake of drinking, <laughs> I mean, you, you can gain 100 pounds. You know, if you're drinking, say, 12, 18 beers a day, or if you're drinking a liter or two liters of, of wine a day, the, the, it's just pure caloric intake. And the thing is, you're replacing that with, with a real diet, because most alcoholics don't eat very well. Or they'll, they'll tend to eat crappy food. They'll eat fast food, they'll eat fatty food, stuff that just tastes good. And that's part of the problem, too, because you create a horrible diet, you create just an atrocious diet. And, you know, even in the end with my wife, I would cook, you know, I'd go have a barbecue and my son and I, I would have a steak and I had potatoes and we have corn on the cob. And my wife would go get a, a frozen dinner and pop it in the microwave. She wouldn't even eat with us because she had to eat this just fatty, salty food which was she was very attracted to because of the alcoholism her it, it completely changed her taste buds which is a, another interesting side effect of the disease you know yeah so was she did she start to ignore or just pass up like social opportunities because of her drinking yeah that well she didn't but what happens is when you become an alcoholic you you will lose your friends long term you will lose everybody eventually you won't have any friends uh it doesn't make any difference if you're the most outgoing person in the world um eventually your friends won't want to have you over because you passed out in the living room or you knocked over uh, a, a piece of art or <laughs> or you threw up in the middle of, of someone's house and i'm not making all this stuff these are all things that happened to me and to her. Uh, I mean, I, I know she had some good friends that she had had friends since college and she drank too much and their five-year-old son found her next and next morning in the family room. She had no clothes on and she was in a pile of urine. I mean, the, 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 the very graphic. And she'd known these people for 30 years and they, they called me up and said, you know, we got, you know, we, we love her, but we can't ever have her at our house again. You know, that's just one example of probably 20. And slowly you become very isolated because no one wants to be around you. No one wants to invite you to their house. No one wants to come over to your house because they know your disease has completely consumed you. The only friends she had at the end were friends that were long distance, people who she hadn't seen in 20 or 30 years that would talk to her on the phone. And then she could become this other person that they used to know, <laughs> you, know? you know, but locally she got very, very isolated and I had to isolate her. You get to the point where you have to take car away car keys because she's a danger to, uh, to herself and to everyone around her. And she drove through the front of the house twice. Yeah. Wow. You, you, you can't have, I can't give someone car keys <laughs> if they're going to drive through the front of the house. Yeah, had, yeah, like the first yeah. time I saw the car parked in the living room was an issue. The, yeah. the second time it's becoming a problem. You know, maybe we had a maybe this is one habit. Maybe we had a curb. You know, but but by then I'm I'm really talking about later stages. But 
she had she ended up having four DUIs, but after the second DUI, I mean, I she was driving around with a car, and I wouldn't register her car just on that on that for purpose. She was uninsurable, so she's driving without insurance on an unregistered car and a license that had been revoked, and she was drunk. <laughs> wow, you know, and with a broken windshield. I think she had had you know smashed her head up. She's driving had a BMW was it X five. And she's driving around in that for the last four or five years. And I would hide the keys and do anything I possibly could to make sure she didn't get in that car. But back to what we're talking about, she became very isolated for that reason. I had to, just for her own protection. Uh, So if someone wanted to see her, they had to come see her. Or I had to drive her somewhere. You know, The only way I could, if she went anywhere, is if I had to drive her. Because there's sometimes that she, <clears throat> if I felt comfortable, maybe she got back from her rehab and she hadn't had a drink in five or six weeks. And I'd feel comfortable enough. She said she, she was going to make dinner, for example. She hadn't made dinner in a long time. So I gave her the car keys one time and she went to the grocery store and uh, I didn't see her for three days. Wow. Gone. And a police officer called me up uh, after three days and said, you know, we found your wife in a park. Uh, she was passed out. And we brought her to the hospital. Uh, she's in very bad shape. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so these are things you, you had to clamp down uh, on the situation. Um, and, and, it's, and for me, it's a very isolating situation, too, because it's like, what do I do? People say, well, why don't you leave? Why don't you leave the thing? Well, I had a son. It's, it's, it's more complicated than that. You can't just uh, you can't just walk away from something like that. If I walked away from Amanda, she probably would have been dead in three or four weeks on her own. Like if I had gotten her apartment so she could go live by herself, she, she would have been dead within three or four weeks easily. You know, so that, that's something you have to live with. That's something that you you have to make a decision. So I made the decision to. Uh, keep our family together until my son graduated from high school and at least went away to college. That was kind of my goal. And that's really kind of what happened. You know, for the family, when someone is an alcoholic, the, the whole family is an alcoholic. They, 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 they're all struggling with the same disease. And it consumes, it's like this giant uh, black elephant in the room. It just consumes everything around you, <laughs> you know? In every way, in every way. I mean, you have to hide, uh, have to hide keys. I had to hide money. I had to hide bank accounts. Uh, if I had a credit card, I had to hide my wallet sometimes. Usually when I went to bed, I had to hide the wallet. I had to hide my own keys. Uh, any uh, like checkbooks, anything, any way to get money, I had to hide it. You know, otherwise, it was just going to be very, very dangerous. Uh, and these are situations that your loved ones have to go through when you're involved with someone with this disease. You know, it's all the, the paranoia and the stress that, that's, that, you know, that, that's uh, included with it. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have a good attitude about it, but um, that's a, those are a lot of problems for people to go through that. I don't think, you know, you don't get to see that side of it. You're like, Oh, there's this person struggling with alcoholism. And it's right. like, yes, but the people at home are trying to, you know, hide money or hide car keys or keep them inside the house because they're, you know, a danger to everyone around them. Right. Like living with that day to day has to take a pretty heavy toll on 
the family of an alcoholic. Oh, it you know, does. And not just the person that has a drinking problem. Right. Yeah, man, my worst fear was that she got behind the wheel of a car and, you know, hit someone, you know, ran over a kid in the parking lot or, or you know, hit somebody in a crosswalk on a bike. You know, and I would, I mean, for me, that would have been like as much my fault as hers for, you know, allowing her to, you know, be behind the, the wheel of a car, you know? Right. You know, on top of that, I mean, I'm, I'm a, an insurance broker. So, I mean, I was dealing with this at home and then I had to go do a presentation in front of people with, you know, 50 people and, and become this other person you know, with all the stress at home. And uh, it was wearing on me near the end. It was wearing it will wear you out. And my son, for example, um, when he was 18 years old, I think I didn't realize how stress, how much stress it was uh, creating for him. He would just kind of isolate himself into his bedroom. And when he graduated from high school in 2018, he weighed, and I didn't, I wasn't paying attention, but he, he weighed 298 pounds. I mean, he's six foot one, but he was uh, massively overweight himself just from the stress uh, overeating and just dealing with all this, uh, within two years, within six months of my wife passing, he dropped, uh, 114 pounds, just, wow. just, just from the relief <laughs> of not having to deal with all this on a daily basis. Um, just, I mean, that's just how it affected him, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is, that is, I mean, a, a wild testament to what stress can do to you it is is. because if if you you told me i was going to lose 114 pounds over the next (laughs) six months i would be very scared for myself (laughs) well what he did was he and he did um well he started losing it maybe a few months before she passed because he went back to college i I dropped him off in college in february of 2019 or in september of 2019 he was home for about a week for Christmas and then he just, he didn't even want to be come home. And then she, she fell down the stairs at her seventh rehab in January of two of 2020. And then she passed away in February, two twenty. but he started losing weight around September of 2019. And by September of 2020, he'd lost in that year period, he lost 114 pounds. He, he did it by just intermittent fasting like he, he didn't eat after eight o'clock and didn't eat again till maybe 12 or one the next day and he drank like 10 bottles of water a day sure just, just ate, being just you know he ate fried chicken and uh, broccoli and rice he was on that kind of diet they just like fell right off him <laughs> sure and being removed from that stressful situation uh, has to help oh it was like remember i picked him up at the airport about six months after uh you know, my wife died and I didn't even recognize him. He's like, who is this person? He was, he was smiling. You know, he only weighed about 185. He was down to his normal weight and he was just look, he was healthy. I was like, wow, wow. I just, I, and I, I almost cried at that point because I, I, I didn't realize how much an effect all of this had on him, you know, because I was so involved just dealing with my wife that, uh, you know, he fell between the cracks a little bit. And at least he had me, at least he had one, you know, one good parent. You know, I, I can't say Amanda, you know, Amanda was a bad parent. Um, she was a very, very loving person. I think that was part of the problem. She was a very nice person, just innately a very, very sweet person. Um, you like, you, every time you 
you walked in the room, you had to tell her you loved her, you know, that kind of thing. You know? It wasn't like she was a mean, nasty drunk where she threw things around and was just rude and obnoxious. She was never that, not even as a drunk. Uh, as a drunk, she was just would sit there and smile and, you know, she would apologize for drinking. She would be uh, aware of what she was doing, but she just she just couldn't stop it. Uh, just couldn't stop it. But, you know, every alcoholic situation is different. I mean, there's a lot of I've I've known alcoholics that were very mean, you know, uh, violent. You know, that's another issue entirely. If Amanda had been violent or mean or uh, vindictive, I would have been gone, you know, <laughs> at year one, probably. You know. Yeah. Well, and that says a lot because you're you know, you said I didn't recognize him and I didn't realize all the stress he'd been under. And realistically, like you probably didn't realize how much stress you were under because you were so focused on trying to take care of this person that wasn't really taking care of themselves. Right. Well, in, in, well, in my situation, I think I dealt with it by by lifting weights. Uh, I, I got into bodybuilding. Um, I, I went to the gym probably five, five to six times a week, lifting heavy weights. I mean, when I was 56, I'm 60 now. When I was 56, I, I deadlifted uh, 752 pounds, which is an outrageous amount uh, for my age. I mean, I'm six foot. I'm about 245, um, but I, I'm I'm all muscle. And I think I dealt with it by just lifting weights. I think that's what saved me, just going into the weight room and just pumping for two hours every day. I think it got a lot of my aggression out and helped me mentally. Uh, it was kind of my Zen. You know, I needed to do that just to, to cope. <laughs> yeah. It was like finding a different kind of struggle. It was a different kind of struggle and it really helped me because it, it just, um, you know, physically and mentally uh, lifting weights is a very physical and a mental activity. Uh, at least I was able to turn it into some kind of positive. You know, I had to do something positive. I did that and I read a lot. I did a lot of reading and, you know, obviously writing after this was done. But so family members, they have to find. Um, there's, there comes a point and I've written about this, but you, you have to draw a line in the sand and you have to come to the realization you either you have to walk away or this person is going to get better. If the person's not going to get better, you have to get walk away. Now, my wife and I, we're a husband uh, and wife relationship. But when it's a, a parent and a child relationship, that, that's a whole nother dynamic, you know. Um, so when I've talked at rehabs, like I've talked to the Betty Ford Clinic, uh, Amanda went to Michael's house in Palm Springs, I think five times. They have a thing called the family weekend. And I and after she passed away, I they asked me to talk a couple times. Um, and I'm, I'm very, um, kind of no nonsense. I say, you know, you, you, you cannot enable your children. You, if your child is in rehab and they're 22 years old, you have to allow your child to fail. Don't keep giving them money and everything they want. <laughs> they're just going to keep doing the same activity. You have to allow your child to hit rock bottom. Um, because there's, there's no better education than a zero bank account and nobody to turn to. You get real resourceful real fast <laughs> and you get, you will, you will sober up and you will, you will grow up very fast. Uh, as long as you don't have somebody enabling you. 
And this is kind of one of the talks that I have at family weekends at rehab facilities. Uh, so many, so many of these families, especially the rehab families, they're, they're very affluent families. You could tell, uh, and their kids are like, you know, they got uh, three, they got uh, an iPhone, uh, 18 in their hand <laughs> and they got a $3,000 phone in their hand and they, they were, they were in Gucci clothes and you're like, wow, what you got, you, you guys are not getting this, you know? They probably have a $2,000 a week bank account. No wonder they have a, a drug and uh, alcohol addiction. They don't have to do anything. You, you got to let your, you got to let your kids fail. You have to let them fail. That, that was always my message. You know? Yeah. I think it's a good one. So if we look at just anyone in general, when is the best time for you to push for a person to get help? If you're just, the average person on the street and you believe, you know, someone who is an alcoholic, like when is the best time to start pushing them to get help? Well, as soon as the people around them can no longer, can no longer handle it. When the, when the pressure point for the people that surround the alcoholic have had enough, um, that's a good indication. Like if the person is staying with parents or it's a situation like mine, uh, you have to do an intervention. You have to sit the person down and you have to draw a line in the sand and say, uh, we will no longer have a relationship, whether you're my son or daughter or my wife or husband, uh, unless you go to this rehab facility, there will be no financial help. There'll be no more emotional help and we will no longer have a relationship. And you have to make a decision. You can walk out that door right now and go live on the street. If that's, if that's the direction you're headed, uh, but we're, we're no longer going to assist you in this mental health disease. Uh, and you need uh, professional help uh, in an inpatient facility. And we're, and we're willing to, uh, you know, assist you that far. But you, you got to draw a line in the sand. Or it, you just have to walk away. Yeah. yeah. Becomes a very like, look, you can either choose alcohol or you can choose the rest of us. Right. And you don't want to go down with the ship. You don't want to really, you don't want to do what I did. <laughs> you know, I was just trying to save myself and my son. And it was, and I, I think my ignorance of the whole disease uh, is what kept me there. Long. I just didn't understand it. I thought, oh, she'll get better. She'll stop. She said she's going to stop. She, and, I, and I believe this for 10 or 15 years. Um, maybe I have a tolerance level more than other people. I, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't do what I did. I wouldn't stay as long as I did. Um, it's too much stress. And at the end of the day, I don't know if it's completely worth it. You know, life is too short. Uh, even if you love someone, you know, life, life's too short to go down with the ship and you have to think about your own life and your own mental health. You, you really do. That's a, it's a bit, you know, for families, you got to think about, uh, your children and your, you know, who, who's ever involved with this disease. I mean, I have a cousin for example, not to get off subject, who has the same kind of problem. He's older than me, and his, he's one of six siblings. Uh, he's been living on the streets for 20 years, and occasionally his siblings will see him, you know, on the street, and they'll stop, you know, but they won't let him over at their house because he steals stuff, <laughs> you know, so they had to draw a line in the sand, you know. And I don't think being outside in upstate New York is a particularly <laughs> desirable location in the wintertime. I don't know how he survives, but 
um, you know, the rest of the, the other six siblings, the other five siblings have moved on and they, they all have successful lives. Uh, and they, they all, they all feel very badly for their brother. He's a brilliant guy, <laughs> but they, they chose to move on. And sometimes you just have to do that. Yeah. I think it, it really leans into like, there is a limit at some point someone is either, you know, they've made that decision. They would rather have alcohol than the rest of us. Or, you know, they're just, I think what people would consider like too far gone. Right. Um, do you, do you have a line that you would advise people like this is exactly when they are too far gone? I think a good indication is if, if you, if you've had one, one DUI, okay. A second DUI, that's no longer an anomaly. That, I think that's a good uh, litmus test. You know, if, if you're getting arrested for this, you got a problem or it's just how you're making people feel around you. I mean, if you're, uh, if you're passing out drunk on the floor or, you know, it's, it's, it's time, you know, and you're making a habit of that or you're just, you're stealing, you know, you can't hold a job because of the disease. That's a pretty good indication. It's time to either. Uh, get help for that person or, or, you know, I don't like to say force help. You really, you're, you're drawing a line in the sand so that person can make their own decision, which direction that they want to go. Cause it, it's almost useless unless they make the decision until they make, you know, have the idea that, you know, you're right. You guys are right. I do need help until they make that decision. If you force somebody into it, they're just going to be, you know, it's going to like be They're going to uh, they're going to attribute to like being in jail. You know, they're, it's, they're there against their will. You, you don't want to send somebody to a rehab against their will because it won't be successful. It's a waste of time for the rehab and it's, it's a waste of time for the, the alcoholic. Yeah, I mean, there's very much a mindset thing in play where if you put them in a, you know, a windowless room for two years if their only <laughs> if their only thought is when i get out of here i can't wait to have a drink like right. they're still not recovering they're not recovering no and that's that's another thing about alcoholics you if you're an alcoholic you will be an alcoholic until the day you die um i, I never understood it because i used to see, uh, who was it if you're watching orange county choppers um the father um he was an alcoholic and it, one part of the show, he got his 25 year pin. I'm like 25 years. That means he hadn't had a drink in 25 years. He, he was still going to AA meetings, although he hadn't had a drink in 25 years. I, I didn't understand that. But the reality is if you're an alcoholic and you take one drink, you just opened up the door to come to return right back to that lifestyle. Because you have a chemical dependency, one drink will become five. And before you know it, you're passed out on the floor again. And you've created a, a, a whole new window of opportunity to go back down that road. An alcoholic can never drink again in their life, uh, ever. Um, and, and I'm very proud of somebody that has something like a 20-year, 25, or 30-year pin. It means they've, they've beat it. They, they, they're that uh, 5 or 10% that beat it. Uh, and they should be a beacon of, of what to do to be successful. <laughs> you know, it really should be a beacon. Well, let's talk a little bit here at the end about that recovery. Sure. Uh, 
do you advise obviously your your wife went through seven of them um do you advise people going to a full-on rehab facility i do advise them going to a rehab facility if you if it's done in the right way the, the rehab facility itself is it's twofold it's just it's a band-aid it's a way to separate the person from alcohol for at least 30 days it's also very helpful to the family because now the family knows that that person is in a safe environment and the family can can have some relief but it's just a gateway to the follow up and this is this is the breakdown it's not the rehab that's the problem it's the follow up when someone gets out of rehab they have got to have an accountability partner uh, they have got to go to you know, a, a organized consulting situation like AA meetings. There's people out there, they need to go to AA meetings once a day. You know, if you feel like, you know, you need to get a drink, go to an AA meeting and you have to have enough fortitude to be able to do that. And you have to have an accountability partner to talk to maybe every day or once a week to make sure that you're staying on track. It's work. It's a lot of work. And this is the breakdown. Um, no one is there to hold your hand or force you to do this work. There isn't anybody there. There's no, um, there's no legislation that says once you get out of rehab, then you have to do such and such an hours at an AA meeting. <laughs> okay. And this is the breakdown. It's, it's, it's equivalent to saying, telling someone they have to have open heart surgery, uh, but here's the scalpel and the, and the, <laughs> And, you know, you, you're going to have to open it up and you're going to have to fix your heart yourself. It really equates to that. So there, there has to be some kind of implementation along with the rehabs for follow-up care. And this is kind of my whole advocacy because I think you'd have a greater success rate if people had to go to outpatient clinics for at least six months to a year and they had to do follow-up really for the rest of their life and have accountability partners. There has to be a better, um, a better community of help uh, for these people. The thing is rehabs, they make their money. They're, they're money making machines. <laughs> this is, you know, they make money when someone is not successful, like my wife, you know, she wasn't successful, so you know there she's back, and she would she would be embarrassed to be back, but the rehab, you know, they still took the insurance money. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're like, oh, welcome back. We got a room set up for you already. Welcome back. Oh, we're so happy to see you again. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Bob's Bob was here. He was here last time you were here, or, or, or you know, Sarah, whoever was here last time. Yeah, you already have a friend here. You know, I was like, oh my god. You know, you're missing it. Some of the rehabs that I put Amanda in, just for my own sake, um, I, you know, my parents are getting older. I live in Southern California, and they, they live in upstate New York, and um, I'd like to go visit them in the summer times. Um, and it was a situation where I couldn't take my wife. There's no way. You know, I mean, she would be drunk on the plane. She'd be drunk in the airport. Uh, we'd have a layover in Chicago and she'd be at the bar for the two hour layover. I, she wouldn't be able to walk on the plane. So I, I couldn't take her. So I couldn't leave her. <laughs> so I, I had to put her in a rehab. A lot of times I put her in rehab for 30 days so I could go on vacation. So my son and I could go on vacation, you know? <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> you know, she come, you know, she'd be all mad. You didn't take me. You didn't take me. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, this is the extent we have to go to. It's the extent I had to go to just to have a break, you know? And a lot of that result, I think that the last time that she, I was able to take her to New York was actually when my mother passed away. Uh, my mother had a stroke uh, and she was in the hospital for God, about six weeks. And I showed up the last three weeks and I brought my wife and, uh, you know, we were going to the hospital every day. And while at the hospital, my wife uh, was at my dad's house or staying at my parents' house and she cleaned out his entire liquor cabinet. But, you know, while we were at the hospital on my mother's deathbed and I came home and she's passed out uh, in, in the bedroom. Uh, it was so embarrassing. I mean, we were dealing with my mother's death <laughs> and I got to deal with this crazy wife. I think it was the most stressful month uh, of my entire life. And I write a whole I write a whole chapter about it. It was. It, and for me, that was that was the end. Uh, that was in 2015. I mean, that for me, that was pretty much the end of our relationship. When she would go that far and, and to be that callous in making those decisions, even though it really wasn't her decision. I mean, by then the the disease had completely taken over. But as, as a as a partner or as her husband, it was that that was the final draw for me. Our our relationship was never the same at that after that. Yeah. Did she ever spend much time working with AA? You know, she she used to joke about it when she come out of rehab or actually it was court ordered that she went to, to rehab or that she went to AA meetings after her, I think her third or fourth DUI, she actually had a court order. She had to go. So she, she would go and like wink at the guy and the guy would, I don't know why they did this, but he would sign his name like 10 or 12 times. Like she went to 10 or 12 meetings and she treated it like a joke. Uh, she said, oh, they're boring. And, you know, I, I'm not getting anything. I don't like the people there. And it's just like, <laughs> well, she kind of had a little bit of a privileged attitude. You know, yeah. honestly, that was part of her problem. She, she did have a privileged attitude. Um, and she was, she was never committed uh, to the program. She never made the decision uh, that I'm going to get better. Uh, she even even through all of this, she still said, oh, I can uh, I can stop anytime I want. You know, she was in denial. I always say she was in denial up until up until the day uh, I turned off the machines and held her hand and said goodbye to her. I mean, literally. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're like, this is not a social club. You are not supposed to be having the time of your life while you're at these meetings, you're at these meetings so that you can stop the behavior that got you here. Right. And you're supposed to identify with what they're talking about and to maybe understand it and understand yourself uh, and to grow from that, uh, from the other stories that people are telling. I think it takes a lot of guts for someone to stand up in front of other people and admit they're an alcoholic and, and to tell their story. I think it takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of courage. Uh, and I think it, it was an important part of the process to be able to, you know, go there and, and, and to do this. And that was the downfall with her. She never committed uh, and really never followed through. So whenever she went to rehab, she was basically flat out drunk within three to four weeks after any rehab she ever went. They might have lasted 20 days. So she had a period of maybe 50 days. The longest time she was ever sober was when she was pregnant with our son. She didn't have a drink for uh, 
you know, about nine or 10 months, you know, kudos to that. <laughs> kudos, I, I did get that. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing she got right was our son. Yeah. That, that is good. But yeah, you know, it's, it goes back to what we said at the start of this, you know, are you willing to be that 5%? Cause you got to work really hard to do it. And you know, that means going to these meetings, standing up, saying your story, admitting you have a problem, like without admitting it, without trying to find a support system of any kind, you're doomed to be the 19 in 20 that don't recover. You're doomed. What people don't realize is you're you're in a life or death struggle. So if you don't do the work, there's there's really nothing else matters because it's just a matter of time. Um, the average alcoholic lives 30% less than the average lifespan. Uh, women live a little bit longer. It's between 52 to 58 is the average alcoholic. My wife was 58 when she died. Average man is a little bit less, like five years less. It's like 50 to 55. So your, your lifespan is is shortened by 30 years. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's pretty oh. significant. That's pretty significant. Yeah. I mean, you're talking what 40 percent of your life yeah. basically yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah i mean if you die at 50 you you've lost 40 years i mean a good chance yeah i mean 30, it... you've, you've lost 35 40 years on an average lifespan um and the thing is when you die uh your friends are gone and the people the the family members that you have left i mean who wants to die and be surrounded by people who resent you <laughs> You know, that's, that's not much of a legacy, you know, it is not, it's not much of a legacy. Well, I have appreciated your story and coming on here. Um, it's meant a lot. And I think we have some really good pearls of wisdom in here that if people are listening, like they got a lot out of this. Um, so I, I appreciate that immensely. I wanted to give you some time to, you know, plug your book. I know sure. we talked about amanda a cautionary tale a little bit right. but you know just tell people where they can find you where they can find the book you know anything else that you're working on yeah you know i have a, the the best thing, you can go to the website it's amanda a cautionary um the book's coming out in september uh, i've got pre-orders i've got a number of <laughs> it's, it's growing because I'm, I'm doing so much work for it but you go to the website put your email in there and you'll get a uh you know, a response telling you when it's being released and where you can get it. It'll be everywhere once it comes out. Yeah, you know, I'll have it on um, Amazon. Will be the the initial place, but it, it'll be all over the place eventually. Um, okay. I have okay. a face. I have a Facebook group. If you want to join me, uh, Amanda, a cautionary tale. Uh, I've gone over excerpts, and I have a lot of my blog posts and a lot of um, just conversation I have in there. I have several hundred people in my my Facebook group. It's kind of like a community uh, that are very interested in this subject. Awesome. Well, I hope people check it out and uh, get listed for that pre-order. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yes. Thank you for being on it. It again yeah. means a lot. Yeah. Thank you, Colton. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. If you want to help the show grow, rate it five stars on iTunes or Audible or Spotify or wherever else. If you have not already, tell somebody you know about the show. I know I say this every week, but just tell somebody. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. It's getting more active by the week.
Just a little reminder, I'm going to be in San Jose, California, August 4th to the 8th. If you want to hang out, that'll be fun. So if you're in the area, just drop in. Let me know. Send me a message. Otherwise, our top countries for July, and I know we're getting pretty close to the end of the month, are number one, United States, still hanging around 40% with the top states, Oregon and California. Number two, Australia, still led by New South Wales. Number three, Canada, with Ontario narrowly taking back the top spot. Four, the United Kingdom, holding ground very well. And number five, after a whole lot of change-ups, Iran, bumping a whole bunch of other contenders down a rung. That's all for now. I'll see you all Thursday for the next tail-wagging episode. Bye-bye!